Okay. Welcome to the EQIQ podcast, where we foster connection and deepen your ecological intelligence. I'm Aaron Henderson, and our guest today is emeritus professor, prolific author, and fire historian, Stephen Pine. Stephen Pine's journey and work with fire started in his late teenage years, around 18, I think, where he spent 15 seasons as a woodland firefighter. Uh, Stephen Pine is a prolific author of over 30 books, all discussing the nature, not all, but most discussing the nature of fire and our relationship to it. He's been awarded numerous fellowships in several universities and held a position in Arizona State University for the last several decades. Stephen Pine is recognized as the foremost academically researched expert on fire in the world today. And more than that, through combining the academic and on-the-ground worlds together, Stephen has created a truly unique dialogue around the relationship between fire and humans. It's a real pleasure to to welcome Stephen Pine uh, today to EQIQ to discuss uh, a, a deep relationship with fire. And uh, um, Stephen Pine, welcome to EQIQ. Well, thank you. Let, let me let me. Can you clarify uh, something. Your introduction back one second. I'm I'm really uh, not the world's expert in fire. I, I am a, <laughs> a demographic of one for fire history around oh. the world, and I specialize in some things. But there are m- many people much better. Yeah, much better trained and knowledgeable about fire behavior and I'm, I'm, I'm very than I am. So. I'm very very happy to I'm very happy to accept the correction there, Stefan. Actually, I I'm, we've got on the books to interview interview a very special person called Victor Stephenson. He's a traditional um, Aboriginal uh, okay called fire expert in in Australia. And uh, so when I actually wrote that, I, I I had a feeling I know in the back of my mind there was other very you know knowledgeable people, but in this terms of the relationship, which is what we're going to talk about today, I, I really resonated with a lot of words you said because EcoIQ is all about connection, and you really talk about connection, and that's a very special space because normally it's just a lot of information and science, which is very nice, but uh, it's it's a bit different. Yeah. Well, data is just data. It, yeah, it has to be transformed into meaning. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So I'm uh, just before we get started, I'm really interested. What's your you? You've got a little farm, uh, like a homestead. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand, right? How how is that? How's your day look like now? I mean, you've retired um, a little while ago from from uh, academic, from teaching, being professor, yeah. active, and and uh, and you've written a lot of books. Probably, I, I wouldn't be surprised you're working on something. We'll get to that. But what's your what's your regular? What's your day look like now? You know, in, on your farm, do you. Well, well, I, I, I'm not sure I have a regular, a regular uh, routine, but uh, I try to write in the morning and then uh, spend the afternoons on farm stuff. So that's in the winter. We, uh, I live in southern Arizona. It's a desert. The winter is great. Summers are um, pretty brutal. So I reverse it in the summer, work on the farm in the morning and then write mm-hmm. uh, in a cool house in the afternoon. So I try to, I try to balance the two. Uh, but I have to say, at times like now when Australia is burning and with yeah. a kind of global media presence, I I get called on for interviews and op-eds and comments. And of course, I I'm happy to I'm happy to accommodate as much I can, much as I can. So something the the sheep have to be fed, the chickens have to be taken care of, the trees have to be watered. So uh, that's a given. So my writing. My writing gets downgraded a bit, but that's mm-hmm. fine. But you, but you still manage to. You, I, I think it's really incredible. Uh, like a lot of people I know that I'm in, in that space, that they, you, you manage to write. You make it a priority to write as much as you can, almost every day. You said. Yes, I, I find that I become grumpy if I can't do any writing. It's like people who are hooked on exercise or something else. I just, uh, 
I, I just feel like it's an incomplete day. I, I didn't make sense of the day. So, do you feel it really clarifies? Uh, do you? Feel, I mean, you've written a lot of books. Do you really feel that that clarifies your your uh, connection to your work and, and and your connection to to meaning when you when you um, put it down all on paper and put it down, clarify the yeah. idea? Yeah. Now, if I can't express it in some way, I don't really understand it. Mm. And trying to write uh, is a great way to force yourself to understand mm. and to recognize the limits of what you know or think you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, writing for me is fundamental. And I'd be really curious. It's not, just that I, it's not just that I have ideas and then write them out in a gush. It's the writing that forces that's a constant testing and probing and pushing. And I, I come to ideas while I'm writing. Uh, suddenly, I uh, turn of phrase that I hadn't expected comes up and that suggests another way of thinking about a particular topic. So the writing for me at least is, is basic. Mm-hmm. It's a, yeah, it's a very, it's a very powerful thing. I'm, I'm just starting to get into my, in, into my, in my, my much later years. I haven't much of a lot but I really understand the, the power of that. It's a very special thing to, to be able to get your ideas down on paper and clarify them like that. Um, uh, you, you did mention that, but I know when you sit down and write ideas, it's one thing to study them. But um, uh, like I did mention in the introduction, you had a very um, visceral connection with with, uh, with your work, what, you, what most of your books are written about, with fire, very early on. Could you, could you let us know a little bit about um, that, and in particular that first season? Because I know it was quite significant for you that first, well, it must yeah. possibly be a little bit yeah. traumatic. How was, that, how was that work for you on the ground with working with fire in the, in the forest? Well, it was a complete uh, shock in some ways, um, a marvelous shock in some ways, but also a, a moment of biographical wind shear. I mean, I had grown up in a Phoenix suburb. I played sports. I was a valedictorian, a high school, heading to college. And then suddenly, a few days after graduating, I find myself on a forest fire crew at the North Rim of Grand Canyon. I'm, I'm at eight to 9,000 feet, significant elevation, lush forest, fires. I'm working with tools I don't know the names of, places I've never been, um, having to acquire skills uh, I had never imagined. And somehow, because of my background, because of my academic inclinations, my my bookishness in a certain way, I I also found myself having to make sense out of that. And that was a real, in some ways, I'm still working through that. Mm-hmm. trying to reconcile those two those two lives and and for 10 years um the two lives were totally discontinuous uh i would go for summer on the north rim with all boots and gloves and hard hats and uh real kind of manual work uh, i mean there's an intellectual component but this is really manual work we completely isolated we had no newspapers no um no television um uh, no radio effectively. I, I read about the lunar landing uh, a week later in Time magazine. That was when the mail came. That was it. Once a month, the county bookmobile would roll in and we'd, we'd get some books, but that was it. And we were never bored. It was a consuming life in a way. And then I'd go, you know, I'd go to college and totally different. They, I never studied fire. I was never at a place that taught fire. So it was 10 years after I, after I got my doctorate uh, when I finally decided I, I really needed to pull these two lives together and take the academic training I'd been given, mostly in history, and apply it to fire. Mm. 
but it must have been a really uh, must have been a very different calling because I mean a lot of the time that calling it doesn't come from such a deep uh, a physical connection. I mean I I spent personally I spent uh, th- uh, three seasons uh, in forestry in Australia. And they were only three months long. I don't know. How, how long were your seasons every, every time? Well, there were three months, basically. But but it was a very intense three months. We lived right on the rim. I mean, this is one of those spectacular scenes in the world. And that it was home for us. It was our backyard. And we became very familiar with it. It's, it's also the time in your life. I mean, it's a coming-of-age story. Here you are being given this opportunity. And uh, some years had a lot of fires, some years not so many, but we were always busy. What, what, made, you take, what made you take that decision there, Stephen? To do it? Yeah, yeah, the first well, time. Well, I, I, uh, I had been hired as a laborer. I was going to work in the south rim of the park, just probably collecting garbage and paving roads and, you know, <laughs> fixing, sweeping off nature trails, whatever. And uh, it was just as a fluke. Uh, one of the guys on the uh, North Ram called in while I was there signing my papers and said he couldn't come this summer. And they were anxious to fill it. And there I was. And they said, do you want to go? I'm 18. What do I know? Not much. I said, sure. So they flew me over. And I, I have to confess, I mean, we're getting a little distracted here maybe, but it was in many ways a magical moment because it was just this little single engine Cessna, me and the pilot. And, uh, there was a big storm in the canyon at the time, so we're veering out uh, around the thunderstorms and the clouds, and so the clouds would part, and you could look down in the canyon, then the clouds would seal. And then we get to the North Rim, and there's this little graded area in a meadow, a rocky meadow, and the clouds part, and we drop down, and we land there. And then the hail came, and we couldn't leave anyway. The pilot couldn't leave anyway. And so there I am. I've just sort of dropped into this sort of magical world, you know. So I, I've been flown to an island, and the, suddenly the veil is is rent, and there I am. And what the hell am I doing here? Where am I? <laughs> just, but it was a great moment. It was a great life. I mean, for me, it was always it's always been the best of all lives and the best of all places. And so I've I've spent the rest of my life working through that in other forms. Mm. Uh, 15 seasons, you know, on the ground was a lot, and I, I, I was pretty well. I mean, I was physically done in at that point. I mean, I'm not broken, but I'm, I'm that that can be very hard labor, and that that was what I was good for. By then, I was married. I had a kid. I mean, it was time. I just it, it was very difficult to find an academic post, which is one reason why I, I really depended on my summer. Uh, and lots of fires to pay the rent. <laughs> but it also gave me uh, a way of thinking about fire and talking about it that's different when fire is just part of your life yeah. in that way, and it shapes your your summers, and the summers shape the rest of your life. Then you talk about fire in different ways. It's, you don't anthropomorphize it, actually, but you do kind of animate it. It takes It has a character. Uh, we'd come back, you know, after we'd have a fire bust, we'd have four or six fires or whatever from lightning storms. Almost all of our fires were lightning, except some of those in the canyon. And then we'd, you know, we'd all come back and tell stories. Hey, this is what we did. This was a really sweet fire. This was the ugliest fire I've ever been on. This was the craziest fire. This was really fun. I mean, they're all, they're all different. And that's how you learn about fires. And, but you that's how I began to talk about it. Yeah, I write in an academic language. In some ways, I try for a kind of elevated tone. Uh, 
because I think fire really is an epic story. You don't want to become pompous about it and bloated and academic. But there's also a kind of energy. There's a kind of uh, relationship that comes through, I think, in my voice and my, my sense of fire that I could never have gotten without having just lived it mm. in that way. Mm. Can you remember a really significant uh, moment where you, where you first started to uh, get a deep feeling about the fire? I mean, it might have just been the first time you, you were tackling it about <laughs> Can you remember a special moment about it when, you, when you're in the, in the fire that you realize this, this, is like a, this is something deep? Not really. It was just um, the moments were, were more personal. They weren't intellectual in that way. Mm. Um, the moments, the first time we were on an isolated plateau in the canyon, there, there's a very slight, it's a, it's a place called the Dragon. And viewed sideways, that's what it looks like. There's a head, a long neck, and then this body. And then the tail is sort of this uh, crumpled area below the rim. So you have to walk down into the canyon, clamber around, and then come up. Or you can fly in by helicopter, which is how we did it. And this fire... Uh, we weren't able to contain the fire. It got over the rim. And then in the middle of the night, midnight or whatever, this fire comes rushing out of the canyon. I mean, wow. here you are at the edge of the Grand Canyon, moonlit night, dark depths, and these flames are just sort of pouring up out at you. And so we, we hold it. So that, that was an exciting moment, but that was also the time where I was given responsibility for the fire for the first mm -hmm. time. Mm. Otherwise, we were just out there. Somebody else, one of the adults, in effect, the fire officers would would direct it. Now, okay, you can. You've learned enough. You can take it on. So it's it's those kinds of moments. So it's not that somehow peering into the fire, you had I had a spiritual epiphany. You understand? When you look into the fire, people get very mellow. We'd sit around. I mean, our whole lives were fires. We'd sit around. We'd make fires at night. You know, we'd sit around it and and drink beer and tell stories or we play games and come back to it. So we're always, you get, when you look at fire that way, you get very mellow, people uh, calm down, um, become very zen about things. So, uh, you know, the fires, when, when it's blowing and going, uh, it's all action and adrenaline. And then, okay, so you begin to fire as many things, depending on your context and what kind of response it elicits from you. Mm. So that, so I, I don't have a mystical sense of fire. Mm. Uh, I just have a sense of the way it's always, it's out there. It's a part of our, our life. So in much the same way that it shaped my life on the rim, uh, it was not a long, a long leap to, to ask, is that also true for humanity? Yeah. yeah. Has fire been at the center of humanity? Uh, an organizing presence, uh, not just a tool, but a relationship, all these things, could that be expanded? So that's what intellectuals do. You know, academics, we abstract things. Uh, yeah. We try to find larger frameworks and meaning. So that's really what I did. I just began looking at the history of fire in the U.S., and then Australia, Canada, Europe. I've been all over the place and indeed for the world overall. Yeah, you said you, I, I noticed a lot in listening to um, your work. I still haven't received your book yet because I found you very recently, and uh, I just had to get you on the show soon because of I mean, you know what's happening in Australia, which is where yeah. I come from. And uh, I, I noticed, but the main thing that struck me was that you talked about um, a, a relationship with fire, and you had a, a very amazing analogy you used. That um, it's uh, analogy. I mean, it's not really analogy. It's more like a picture 
We said, really, today it looks like everyone is standing with their back to the fire. I mean, just imagine all the fires, wildfires. It's like one fire. And they're using the light. Maybe I translated wrong. They're using the light to, to illuminate whatever issues they want to they talk about. But once we used to sit over the fire and discuss uh, you know, to discuss issues. I mean, you're engaging the fire when you when you when you're talking over. I don't know if I read into that something else. But. Oh. No, I, th I think that's that's true, and it's part of a problem with uh, dealing with fire when it strikes places like Australia or California recently or elsewhere. Is that um, people find it hard to talk about the fire as fire and to come up with proposed solutions that really address fire as fire, that speak a language of fire. They want to use fire to animate some other message. It's so visceral, so graphic, that it gets hijacked. So, oh, this is the way to mobilize. People are, are afraid. They're, they're excited. Here, we will mobilize them. We need to introduce clear-cutting, or we need to shut down any construction of new houses, or uh, this is all climate change and nothing else makes sense. We, we have to direct it. None of those are addressing the fire problem as, as fire. So we're all so busy talking to our, our special audiences, using fire to sort of um, enliven the message that we forget to talk to one another across the fire, which is what we used to do. And how significant do you think that is that uh, today in like, you know, in a generally in a modern society, I mean, we have an open fireplace, but it's not such a common thing. How, how do you think significant that is in, in modern society that the fire is actually literally, we, it's not in, in our lives anymore, really. I mean, it's, it's rare that you find people that, um, I, I the percentage is definitely a lot lower of people that have yeah. open fires and, and yeah. actively engaged like that. I know from me at my house, whenever I open the actual fire, I mean, not using a radiator or something. I mean, my wife is, oh, I feel so much better. You know what I mean? She said, I look in the fire and I feel warmer. You know, it's, it's, there is a relationship over there that's very quickly been discarded. What, what, what do you think the, the um, effect of that is? you think it has an effect across, across different areas? Well, I, I think it probably has in ways maybe we don't understand. I mean, a family used to be defined as those who shared a fireside. Mm. Now they share, um, you know, uh, Digital Entertainment Center. Uh, that that's that's not the same thing. That doesn't have the that doesn't have quite the same quality. Mm. Now, most people, uh, you know, who are living in cities, uh, and certainly those in the industrial world, are going to be removed from fire. Mm. That's almost a definition of industrialization. We we turned to burning fossil fuels, or what I think of as lithic landscapes, taken out of the geologic past, instead of burning living landscapes, which is what we had always done which is burning the bush, burning the forest, the grasslands, the savannah. <coughs> and so it, it's out of our lives. And in some ways, this is, this is for the good, except in you know, ceremonial purposes, where our houses aren't filled with smoke. Uh, our cities aren't smoked in. We don't have flames running through uh, villages in the same way. So in many ways, this has all been to the good. We've found substitutes for burning, uh, even in agriculture now. We've taken it out of our factories. We've taken it out of our, our farms um, and our, our, uh, our yards uh, and fields. Uh, and then we tried to take it out of wildlands, take it out of nature generally. And that's where we really uh, got into trouble because many of these systems need fire. Hmm. 
they've had fire all their existence. And to remove fire can be as ecologically disruptive as putting it into a place that doesn't have it. And when we talk about things being adapted to fire, that it's, it means adapted to a particular pattern of fire. Otherwise, it's like saying something's adapted to rainfall. Uh, well, it matters if the rain comes evenly every every month or if it all comes in two months out of the year and the rest is dry. Um, you change that pattern and you're no longer adapted. So it's it's very similar with fire. And part of what we're seeing in many parts of the world, places that have known fire uh, are not having it anymore in the form that they're adjusted to, that they can accommodate. The, pattern, the patterns have been changed. Yeah. And so that's that's disruptive. So I think the big the big shock in our, our story and our relationship to fire is when we went from burning living landscapes, always searching for new stuff to burn, finding ways to expand the realm of fire, which is also a way of expanding our realm and have gone to an industrial model where we're, we burn these lithic landscapes, fossil biomass, um, and find substitutes. Uh, for fire in our daily life, in our built environments, and then more disastrously in in the countryside and in wildlands or protected nature. The other side effect of, and all this disrupts fire quite apart from climate change. I mean, this this is this is unhinging ecosystems. Yeah. Even without considering, now you add climate change onto it, and we've globalized what was a restricted or locally restricted problem has now become a global one. So climate change is just a huge performance enhancer and it's magnifying everything. So that change, for me, that shift is not just about climate change in the atmosphere. There were ecological disruptions before that. I mean, the United States 50 years ago, actually in the 1960s and 70s, began a big debate. We realized we'd made bad choices about how to deal with fire in our wildlands. We needed to put fire back in. We needed to put good fire back in. And so we've been struggling for 50 years to do that. And this was at a time when climatologists were saying, well, we're, we've got a new ice age coming. <laughs> That's our future. It's, it's sort of in the Milankovitch cycles or nothing. It's, it's arithmetic. We can't stop it. Well, we did stop it. Uh, we are stopping it by, by all of our, our other burning. So that was already in the works. Now we've got climate change added to that. So what had been a fire crisis is becoming, I think, a fire epoch. I mean, we're, um, we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age or what, I, what I've taken to call the pyrocene. And tell me, you, you mentioned in there though, uh, a, a small thing, I think, that um, you said that it wasn't, you know, there was some good in that. So you think this, uh, this evolution away from, I mean, uh, actually fire on the land you think there was also some good in that? There's like a little bit of evolution in that? Yeah, there are some good things. Uh, I mean, you, starting, starting to use agricultural animals on land was managing animals on land. It was, it was, it was fire. So. Well, that's, that's not actually true. Uh, there are some wonderful accounts of managing kangaroos okay. by, by burning, driving the animals, but then also luring them back to the fresh, the green pick, the... The, the much more nutritious. I mean, we, we see the same things around the world and hunting societies obviously understood this and used their burning patterns to move animals around the landscape as they do in African game parks today. I mean, American bison, uh, almost all of a herd, a free ranging herd will go to the freshly burned 
lands. That's the most nutritious uh, and palatable feed. And as soon as it comes up, that's where they are, maybe 85, 90%. The rest are on one-year-old grasses. After two years, that grass is inedible and uh, worthless. So suddenly, you know, we can, and they did, they would move the animals around, driving and pushing and pulling for that purpose. And you can do that at micro levels. Uh, trappers used it to bait, uh, to bait uh, for fur animals. So there are all kinds of examples. How, how in Australia, the famous expression was going um, of fire stick farming that the aboriginal use of fire was not sort of people wandering around their yeah. song lines, vandalizing the landscape. Uh, it was a meticulous, purposeful kind of burning, often at relatively detailed levels. It was almost a kind of horticulture. They didn't have plows. It doesn't look like agriculture, but it is a kind of cultural landscape for which fire is important. I'm sorry, actually- go ahead. I actually heard no, no. That's I don't want to cut you off. I, I just I, I've also heard from Victor Stephenson that um, when they do the traditional burns in Australia, they don't. It's not like um, he said. It's a little bit different when you do like a typical control burns. They don't just burn on mass. They pick. They know how to read the landscape and they pick the the ignition points and they burn there. So they don't. They meet. Sometimes he said they cover very vast. Uh, acreage, but without burning, the, they don't burn the whole lot. They burn, he said, they burn yeah. like specific ignition. Is it, could you talk to us a little bit about, about that? Sure. And that's that's very common in, in Aboriginal, small a Aboriginal societies around the world. Uh, we see this. Um, and typically, uh, the burning would start as soon as the dry season. Now, the big, cl- what underwrites the rhythm of fires is basically the patterns of wetting and drying. It has to be wet enough to grow stuff, then dry enough to burn. So if you have that every year, like northern Australia, your tropical savannas, Mediterranean climate, these are perfect. So you begin burning as soon as it begins drying out, what areas you want. And you can burn small areas because a lot of it is too wet to carry the fire. And then you expand those burns as the drying continues. And one burned out area then becomes a barrier to the next burned out area. And so it can go. You can do this in some wetlands using wet areas uh, as barriers. Uh, Interesting examples in North America, uh, on the Great Plains, uh, particularly in Canada, the best recorded versions, whereas the snow melts. The snow begins to melt. It takes about, um, you know, seven, maybe 10, 14 days. And so you begin burning the dry patches uh, between the melts and the snow banks, remaining snow banks, and you keep, and then as more melts, you keep burning. And so this goes on. It's a, a furious period of burning for a week or two, and then you've burned everything you needed burned in very small patches. It then comes up to green, which is uh, which will retard fire uh, much more than, than dry wood. Or you could burn against, or they would burn against, in grasslands, against forests that still have snow or or much wetter microclimate, so the fire goes out. In other words, you're using all of these sort of local features, fine-grained features, to control the fire. And if you do this for hundreds or thousands, or in Australia's case, tens of thousands of years, the whole system begins to accommodate. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the time I saw, I mean, I learned from, actually from a funny place, I learned from Bill Mollis. And he mentioned mm-hmm. the, this practice of um, of the fire stick farming with the with Aboriginals, but actually, what it would do ecological wise in Australia was they burn the rainforest and the and the eucalyptus forest would creep in because that was fire adapted. 
whereas the rainforest it's not so the the if you you you're aware of that yeah well it depends um there are many examples in Australia, uh, Africa, and elsewhere where you have two systems. You have a woodland or savanna, and then a rather dense forest. And fire doesn't doesn't go between them. It doesn't roll in. Uh, it takes a really strong drought, uh, a powerful drought, for the fire to 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 break into the rainforest, and then it may not. It may not convert that forest unless you have a sequence of fires because it will recover. In fact, it's still, it's not exactly understood why this barrier, what the nature of this barrier is, but it seems to be fairly stable uh, in many places of the world. In fact, uh, David Bowman, Australian now at the uh, University of Tasmania, wrote a book on uh, flame forests and rainforests. And why do the two seem to be... <laughs> um, mm -hmm sort of coherent on their own. What you really need to do to break the rainforest uh, is to introduce uh, grazing animals, trample, change the, change the microenvironment, or especially cutting, clearing, opening it up to sunlight, and then fire can get in in ways that it couldn't before. Mm -hmm. And so this was probably true for, for the uh, great shade forests of temperate Europe as well. It took mm -hmm. a combination of ax and, and grazing animals to break that open to begin burning it, and then you give a slash and burn regimen with some pastoral burning where grasses persist. So you think that's that slash and burn was a was kind of a, a, a good control system or not such a good control system? Well, I don't slash and burn is not for me a pejorative term. Uh, I think it's a, it's simply a way, and and there are hundreds of local terms. I mean, yeah. we we again we abstract it, or we call it Swidden, which is kind of a nonsense word, but to, to try to generalize all the forms. Many of these are very localized. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's also a source of biodiversity if you do it right. If you do it, you know, over, uh, you know, a thousand square uh, kilometers, and then you nuke it with fire, that's, that's not very healthy for the environment. But if you do it in small, you know, one or two hectare patches, and then these grow back and you rotate this around the system, that is a kind of low level disturbance that can be very rich for biodiversity. And we see this in places even around Amazonia. So when, so when, when, uh, when Victor Stefan said that they, I mean, they cover ma like mass amounts of land, but they only light the ignition point. So he's literally meaning what you said that like the whole, not necessarily the whole landscape burns. There's only like areas and that reduces the, um, the risk of like out of like feral fires, like That's you right. said. That's right. And we see this, uh, it's being used uh, in Northern Australia and Arnhem Land. Now there's a large program to as a carbon storage. And what had happened with European introduction, they were inclined to burn at the end of the late season, get a really hot fire over a very large area that would strip out everything except, um, except the grasses that they wanted, which would then sprout back after, when the rains came. The Aboriginal pattern was one to cover perhaps equivalent amounts of land or even more, but to do it over the course of many months, over the course of an evolving drying season. Mm. So you would get many different effects. And of course, uh, you move about the landscape seasonally. You're not stuck with one fixed ownership of a plot. When you, when you start stabilizing ownership, you can't move. It becomes harder to use fire in the old way. You have to be able to use the different parts of the landscape at different times. You're always burning uh, 
according to the season. Okay, so there wasn't so, wasn't mass quantities of, of bush burning at one time. It was it was it was moved around sporadically. So you only had all small areas at any one time. And I'm sure, and I'm sure there were there were times when uh, you know these these winds come up, these these frontal systems pass through the southern part of Australia as they do now, and any flame that was out there uh, would blow up. But uh, it's l- unlikely that they burned with the same kind of uh, ferocity that we see now because the amount of burning that went on would have kept it patchy, would have kept it the intensity down. There would have been patches that would flare up and burn very intensely, but you wouldn't have continuous rolls of fuel. So you may have burned under these extreme conditions. You may have burned as much area as we're seeing now, but the ecological effects would be different. And how, how significant do you think in, in Australia? You, I mean, you think it's just, I, I, I think you mentioned once, I heard you actually mentioned two, two different things. One in an article, which is kind of like a he said, she said thing, and one from Metro right mm-hmm. now, that it's not just a fuel issue. It, it, as much as Australia, yeah. what we've had happen now in Australia, do you think it goes a bit deeper than just a fuel issue, like too much fuel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Australian forestry was remarkable in the world for making controlled burning at a large scale, the foundation of um, fire protection and forest protection. Mm-hmm. They were the only forestry group globally to do that. It was quite a, a repudiation of the old imperial heritage. Um, and they did it after World War II, but forestry was on its way to being disgraced as a profession because of it that. was associated with clear felling and wood chipping and all kinds of other stuff. And so everything they did was, in a sense, tarred mm. by association with them. But they're, And they called hazard reduction burning. They saw it as a means of controlling fire. But there are lots of people who don't believe that nature reserves exist to control fire on them. They exist for lots of other ecological purposes. Yeah. And fire must be adapted to those purposes. So you have a, a counter issue of ecological burning. And this may mean burning in different ways. It can still mean burning. In fact, it tends, all the quarreling tends to reduce the amount of burning that gets done from whatever sort. Australia now has at least a third major group that is Aboriginal peoples who see burning as a part of cultural restoration. Mm. So they, they talk about cultural burning. And then, of course, you have agricultural, pastoral burning. You've got, you've got all kinds of things going on. And the problem is people try to reduce it one or the other, and then you get these polarities, which are not very helpful. And the problem is that too often, as people argue about it, the burning doesn't get done. Mm-hmm. And it's more important that the burning, a reasonable kind of burning, at a significant amount gets done than that it doesn't. This fire is not something you can say, well, we're not sure. We're going to put it aside. We'll table it for a while, and then we'll come back to it when we've all had our say. You better get ready. Research is in. Yeah. Once it's out, it's very hard to put back in. Yeah. It's like trying to restore a lost species. The habitat is not there for fire. Mm-hmm. And now you're dealing with a very difficult problem of reintroduction. So you think so, it's just by the white side in Australia? You know, in a place like Australia, it's more important that the precautionary principle would argue for keeping fire on the land, mm-hmm. and then you adjust it. Rather, we'll take it out, and then 
then when we figure out what we want and we get all the studies, then we'll put it back. It's too late. That's what I've seen over and over again. So some parts of Australia, it may in a sense be too late uh, to, to go back. Some places are doing pretty well. The northern savannas uh, burn routinely. Uh, they're, they're getting better at it, uh, changing how they do it. Uh, Western Australia has had a tradition in uh, public forests of burning. They've gone through a couple of rough spots in recent decades because of critics don't like it. But now, I think after a bad fire, I think it was in 2016 at Wye River, they've come around. We're going to put the burning back in. We'll argue over the details, but it's not worth taking fire out altogether. That's too hard. Victoria is going to have a hard time, particularly in the mountains. It's it burns differently. The mountain ash does not burn routinely. It it obeys a different set of rhythms. That's going to be very hard, and the cultural arguments are going to be really tough. Why why the cultural arguments um, exactly going to be tough? Well, what what do we want that land to be? Mm. Which is in many ways always goes back in Australia to identity questions. Who are we, mm. and how does fire express who we are or what we've done with this land or how we live on it? Uh, that's true generally, but Australia, it always seems to be very close to the surface. In the United States, we have similar arguments, what to do with wilderness fire and, and what to do with fire in other landscapes. And those also are cultural in some form, but you have to get through layers <laughs> to get to it. In Australia, it's, it's always pretty close to the surface. You think that's I mean, Australia is not just a great fire continent. It's a great fire culture going back to Aboriginal times mm. and continuous. And one of the interesting things about Australia is how persistent burning has been. It was eventually, it was broken from the Aboriginal regimes, but it was also passed on and rural Australians tended to do a lot of burning. In fact, critics pointed out they're starting to behave like the Aborigines. They're, they're constantly <laughs> setting fires. They're doing all this. They had transferred and then it transferred to forestry. Then there's an effort to transfer it to ecology, sort of a fire stick forestry, now a fire stick ecology. Now they're still grappling what, what should be the proper role today. But it has, it has continued in ways that was not true in much of the United States, for example. I, I heard Victor Stephenson once said, he said that, you know, I hear a talk, this is him talking, he said, it's not totally a quote, but... So I'm hearing, uh, I, you know, I hear people talk about controlled fires and, and um, wildfires and all these different kind of fires. I'm talking only about um, fires people set on purpose um, for control and uh, all these different kinds of fires, but there's only one kind of fire and it's the right fire. Uh, how, <laughs> how important do you, how, how significant a thing is it for you, to, do you think, to um, get uh, Aboriginal people to give back Aboriginal people like this uh, kind of, um, uh, at least part responsibility in that in that area. I mean, you know, the knowledge is quite deep, especially when you hear someone like Victor talk. It's it's a very um, he's very specific about it. It's it's not a it's yeah. not, not an on mass burning. Well, I think they're demanding uh, that, and that they're going to be political accommodations, uh, as at uh, say Kakadu National Park, which is sort of jointly managed. Um, the difficulty will be, well, there are a lot of difficulties, but one of them is to be actually who, who has say over the land? What is the land supposed to be? Mm. What types of fires are appropriate? Again, you have to move across, you tend to move across landscapes. If you have fixed land ownership, that becomes a lot harder. Uh -huh. There are liability issues. There, it's not just who gets to decide. 
whose vision of the world, whose sense of what it means to be an Australian gets to decide what we do in this particular place of time. So while people argue about that and make compromises and accommodate, in my opinion, it's important that you not take fire out completely. Otherwise, you will just have wildfire or feral flames running across the landscape. So you mentioned just before, Stefan, that um, you, you, there, if people like, let's say someone wanted to take fire to the landscape, it's, it's kind of, you, it sounded like you were saying it's possible, but you can't just take it out. You need to, you need to keep it on the land and, 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 uh, and work with that, like uh, evolve that into something else. I would, that would be my recommendation. And the places in the United States, for example, where we've succeeded parts like parts of the Southeast, Florida, the interior of Florida. I mean, they burn a million hectares a year under controlled conditions there. Um, these are all places where fire was never completely removed and a fire culture was never extinguished. And so they were able to build on that. Now, Florida is heavily urbanized, but all along the coast, everybody went to the beaches. The interior was just open range grazing. And the word was Florida would burn twice a year. Some parts were burned twice in one year, the crazy place. Uh, state forester at one point declared 115% of the state had burned over the last year because so many areas had been burned more than once. So they were able to keep that and build on it. A place like California, which had removed all of that, cannot now put it back in easily. It's going to be very tricky. Mm. But I mean, apart, apart from the Stefan, apart from the actual um, uh, um, the effect, if you take the fire out totally, as in it's harder to introduce it back. I mean, in terms of just ecologically, no. because uh, um, I, I'll, I'll be I'll be straight. I've got a I've got a a person that I um, I've read quite a bit up on is uh, Alan Savory. You, you feel me with mm -hmm. Alan Savory's work? And it's mm -hmm. a very very different approach. I mean, it's a biological approach, and and. Um, when you said that uh, there is a way to evolve it to something else, but you can't take fire out totally, you know, in one go, I was kind of thinking, is it possible to move to like different systems? Uh, are you are you like open to that idea that there's possibility for different systems sure. to, to keep land? I, I wouldn't say fireproof, but uh, um, it's, it, it, like uh, protected against fire, but still, uh, you know, um, ecologically vibrant. Yeah, it depends what it depends what the fire regime is that what what the appropriate fire regime is for what you want that land to be. Hmm. I mean, there are many places in grasslands, particularly the wet grasslands, the tall grass prairie in North America, the sourfelt in Africa, um, many grasslands in Australia. That if you do not burn, uh, they will be overrun by woody plants. Hmm. Well, that changes the whole habitat. So all the species that were dependent on the grasslands or uh, a savanna-like are now now can't live. Other species will come in um, and take those. So you've changed the fire. So part of that may may be that you set up the conditions for very intense fires that would not have been possible before. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a change. But otherwise, you change the habitat. You know, fire is a great recycler. Uh, it's a rejuvenator. It's a kind of all-purpose ecological catalyst. And even much of agriculture, slash and burn agriculture, requires the fire. The fire is not just there to get rid of uh, these big branches and trees uh, that are felled. It's there, it's, it's there to fertilize. It's there to fumigate. It creates a special growing environment for a short period of time. And then after a while, 
Um, you can't grow stuff there. You leave it. You then come back and burn it again, and you start the process. So you get a rotation going. So that kind of that, those kinds of effects turn out to be very very powerful. It's a matter of ecological integrity. So ecological burning would target that. What is the right fire to get that? And can become alarmed rightly about people who say it's all about fuel, and we have to reduce the fuels so we don't have big fires. Mm. Well, in some systems, big fires are the norm. They don't come every year. They may come on centuries. Um, so it's not just big fires or expansive fires. It's getting the right kind of fire for that for what what you want. Getting the, so I think about it as not. You know, one group will look at a landscape and think of it as a fire shed. This is a place like a, a catchment basin or a watershed. And how does water behave there? How does fire behave? How can we move these hydrocarbons around? Uh, it's all reduced to physics and chemistry. And so we need to get the right kind of fire by cutting, burning, uh, chipping, doing stuff. Another would look at say, you know, this is really a fire habitat. How does fire interact with the living landscape here? And what are the things that a fire, fire is doing? It's not just about moving hydrocarbons around. Uh, it's about the relationships, the interactions of, of the plants, the animals, and the rest of it. And fire is a, is a critical component of that. And if you don't have fire, it loses that ecological integrity. Yeah, fuels may build up. It may become more prone to an explosive fire. But just the ecological functioning of that requires fire, just as it requires water and sun. Do you think there would be a way to? I mean, uh, the because the the thing that was significant for me is that um, I when when the landscape has fire on it, those plants become fire adapted, and yeah. I mean, not just become fire adapted. I mean, they actually become uh, they're they're grown with fire. Now, in a place that doesn't have, I mean, not all areas I think would have yeah. fire all the time. You totally correct me. I'm not an expert on this no. at all. No, no. But no? All, all places of it. No, that there are areas that don't burn. Yeah. So, I mean... It, it are not naturally, have no natural basis for fire. Central Europe. Yeah. For example, the northeastern U.S., they have rainfall every month. The precipitation constant every month. They have no dry lightning. They have no natural basis for fire. Fire exists because people put it in. I mean, do you and think, there is, there, is, there a, is there a succession of species um, when, you, when it comes to actually managing with fire? Is there, a, like, let's say a, a place has been um, too damaged by fire. Is there a succession of species that are more, like, fire-prone and maybe less, uh, I don't know, nutritious to wildlife or nutritious to, to, to cattle mm -hmm. or something like that because it's so fire-damaged? I mean, if you, if you had less burning or you, you, you're some other direction I'm going yeah. And not being and not being burned, do you think slowly those those plant species would adapt and they would change to be fire maybe fire resistant but not uh, fire adapted? Well, there are, there are fire um, yeah there are, there are really fire dependent or fire obligatory species that really need fire or they're overtaken by others and crowded can't mm -hmm. compete. There are lots of species who are fire adapted but not fire dependent. Okay. If fire doesn't come or it comes at a very long interval, they can still do okay if other things are functioning. And then there are some that just are harmed by fire in any kind of fire, um, you know, like frost in a banana. It just it just goes. It it doesn't. It's not going to. It's not going to survive very long. So yeah, you need. You know, fire doesn't belong everywhere. 
And places that have fire need different patterns of fire. They need different regimes of fire. Mm. So it's not just, yeah, this is, stuff is adapted. Let's throw fire in. Well, uh, consider some of the Feinbos in, in South um, Africa. I mean, one of the floral kingdoms of the world, just this small triangle of land, is its whole floral kingdom, very intensive biodiversity. And yet they need fires to get the right mix. You need, if fires are too frequent, uh, the cedars can't reach the age where they can recede. If it's too long, they're shaded out by other species. So there's this window in some places, maybe be, you know, a 10 year between four and 14 years or so, you have to have the right kind of fire. So it, yeah, they need fire, they're adapted to it, but they need it in a particular way. If the fire pattern shifts, then the species composition will shift as well. I, I, but basically, I, I, if, if you burn ahead. it either every year or you keep fire out, you will lose the system. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I think it's yeah. really it's really a deep the, the the way you approach it, Stefan. Because I remember even once you said that you really you see fire as like an organism, and I think it's it's very <laughs> special. But on the other hand, it's quite difficult for a lot of people to to get a grasp on because I think it's we have a proclivity naturally to to tend towards I want the dry information. I you know I just want the statistics. Where do I burn and how do I do it? But where when you, it seems like when you approach right. fire, your approach is very very it's organic and that's you you need to be able to change uh yeah. you to change yeah. with the to to adapt to the situation at hand and i, I it's actually right. me, go ahead go ahead no 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 that's fine i i, I shut I, well, I was just going to say that fire is not alive but it's a creation of the living world hmm. life created the oxygen life creates and organizes the fuels and in a certain sense when humans come around Life supplies most of the ignition. So it's not living, but it takes on some of the properties of the living world. And we tend to reduce it. I mean, it's one of the glories of science and reductionism and then make things yeah. based on those. So we think of it as candles or blow torches and, or yeah. engines and things. Uh, but that's not, that's, so we, it's all about physics and chemistry, but that's really not what it's about in, in landscapes. It's a part of living landscapes and unlike rain, well, there aren't many cases where other sort of disturbances interact with organisms in the same way. So things become adapted to fire, but fire then takes on the personality of what's adapting to it. And there are species now that are very fire prone, which seems to make no sense. I mean, they're basically arranging themselves to be burned in some kind of incineration, and you think, this is crazy. How is, that How is that an adaptation? But what those fires do is drive off competitors for a period of time and allow the species to perpetuate itself in ways that weren't true. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are many species with serotonous cones, which are, so the seeds are encased in a waxy uh, covering. And that, that is in the canopy of the shrub or the tree. Well, when flame passes through a canopy fire, really high-intensity crown fire, yeah. or through the shrubs, that melts this, and then the seeds are liberated onto uh, a nice ash bed. Mm. So that, that seems like a crazy adaptation, but it needs fire, and it may grow in such a way to promote the kinds of fires it needs. So there's a really deep ecological interaction with fire, co-adaptation. And that's true for 
for humans as well. So do you I mean, think we can't we we can't live without fire. I mean, if if the cooking studies are correct, it's in our genome. You know, we got small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. Yeah. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now we've become a geologic force because we're cooking the bloody planet. So it's 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 much more of a relationship. I mean, in some ways we have this we, we have two grand narratives for fire, I think, at least in Western Civ. And one is called the Promethean. And this is a story of fire as power. Fire mm. rested perhaps by violence out of its ordained or natural setting and then applied to human purposes. Uh, and so now we have fire and power. I mean, we've got fire all over yeah. as a source of energy. Uh, the other is maybe a more primeval narrative. And it's what I see in some of the images and accounts we have of Aborigines uh, using fire from early settler accounts, and explorer accounts. And it's much more of a relationship. It's mm. sort of fire as a companion on our journey. Mm. And we are stewards of fire for all of this living landscape. We are the keystone species for fire. I mean, other animals, you know, hunt and knock over trees and dig holes in the ground. We do fire. Mm. We are a monopolist over it. That is our task. And so it's more of a relationship. It's not just fire as a tool. So in a sense, we those two narratives, which which is go which which are we going to be? The the, so. the thing the thing that's really a bit the thing that's really a bit uh, difficult. Did I cut you off, Stefan? No, no, no. The go thing ahead. that's really a bit difficult for me, uh, that I mean difficult as in terms of it makes me a little bit uh you know, I know it's quite a big task is it's very similar to the task that uh, I'm doing with EQIQ on a much smaller level. I haven't read many books, not even one yet. <laughs> but the, the task with EQIQ that I put out is that I really feel what's lacking in most ecological systems is a connection to the ecology rather than the right information or the right system mm -hmm. or the right, even the right approach or the right tools. It's that, that uh, the, uh, the relationship is lacking and the, the, the tricky, the thing that makes me sometimes a little bit, well, it's a big it's a big hill is that that's the hardest seems to be the hardest thing for people to, to get into because it requires a little bit of humility and saying, okay, you know, maybe I don't really know fully what's going on in this system. It's very, very complex. I, to be able to adapt to it, I'm going to have to uh, have a relationship rather than try to understand it in, in its yeah. totality. Uh, how, how, do yeah. You ever get that feeling? It's a bit, you know, a bit, a bit. I mean, yeah. when something happens in Australia, I mean, I can't just go there and okay, tell you, okay, I'll give you the A to Z, you know, steps of what tools to use, and everything will be magically, you know, fixed yeah. up. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. And your problem with sort of ecological understanding is very similar to mine with fire. That most of our, most of our colleagues, most of the population lives in cities. They live in built environments. They don't have a relationship to the living world in a sense. It's a place they may visit or spend a little time in, but they don't live there. They don't understand it. They don't see it as something integral to them. And the same is true for fire. I mean, we just don't. I mean, I could have a fireplace in my house. We have an outdoor pit that I could, that I could I can use, but I could have a fireplace in my house. But the the only days where I make sense to use it. Or when it's cold. When it's cold, it's an inversion, which means that air pollution laws come into play that prohibit you from putting out more smoke. So we're we're so we're so out of whack with all of this stuff. 
And I think you're exactly right. Having that relationship is key. I just wanted to ask you, Stefan, have you got, um, it's a very significant thing. Um, I know you've done a lot of interviews with people in Australia, and I just want to know if you've got a message for anyone out there um, about uh, concerning fire, especially you know, regarding what's happening in Australia right now, if you've got a message for people regarding your work. Well, I, I have a simple formula for what, what's, the fi- what's the state of fire in the world. And it's we have too much bad fire, too little good fire, and too much combustion overall. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't say what we should do. What we should do will depend very much on local places and local needs and determination. Australia has been hit now with, with two uh, sort of not unprecedented, but uh, but in some ways unparalleled uh, fires. The 2009 Black Saturday fires, uh, which which led to a royal commission, which was really a devastating moment for Australians, uh, a real national trauma, yeah. and another one with with the, the summer this season fires, which are going on and on uh, forever, um, and it's only. They can discuss all they want about how to manage fires, but at some point, fire isn't waiting. Mm. (laughs) Fires are happening. Uh, In some ways, they need to happen. And at some point, you have to do stuff and then learn from doing. And Australia is really a great fire culture. I mean, they have a lot of great fire scientists. They, They have a fire art. They have a fire literature. They've got a lot. But somehow, there's that that final engagement uh, to get to get serious. And, and in some ways, it may be the Aborigines who uh, yeah. tip the scale right now. So it's not just a dichotomy of polarizing, yes or no. There's a third party, a three-body problem now. So it's, it's unstable. And that might help them move along for some. Uh, they're in a very difficult situation. Um, and I, as an outsider, uh, very wary about telling them what they should do. It's not my, it's not my place. That's for them to decide. Yeah. Uh, but I think they can learn uh, from their own history and from the history of others. And I think uh, the case is that uh, fire is serious, and it, it's a long-term commitment. And it's not that you go out and we do some burning for whatever we call it, and we vaccinated that landscape now. No, the fires are like flu shots. You've got to have them every year. You constantly do it. They're not totally effective. Some part of the population won't respond and then things, conditions will change and they're less, but you still need to do that. Yeah. And it's, it, you will be managing fire forever. Mm. It's not a fixable problem. It is in a sense a relationship with that, your, your living environment. Mm. And you said, that, that commits you to it. It's like tending a fire in your home. You, you have to take care of it. It's or it goes out. You, you think know. in Australia that might the culture might be a, might be one of the key things to to help over there. Maybe it's introducing it more into the culture. Yeah, hmm. I think so because that that defines it in different terms. So it forces the debate out of its ruts. Hmm. That's but I don't know. I my you know my wishes are are all for them. I really like Australia, and uh, they've got a great fire history. For someone interested in fire as I am, it, you know, you you have to you have to make sense of Australia in some way. 
but it's really, I, I have no particulars. You need to do A, B, and C, and then you fixed it. This is a cultural issue. These are values. They're questions of identity. Um, it's about their future. Uh, it's for them to do. I can, I can tell them how I, how I see it, but uh, ultimately they need, and they need a mechanism to decide. And that's part of what's wrong, what's the difficulty in the United States is that we simply don't have a mechanism to bring people together and start talking seriously about it. Everybody wants to use it for some other agenda. Mm-hmm. I, I think even I think that 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 message is even significant. Even you haven't given any direct advice. Do this. I think it's very significant in its depth, Stefan, because it's uh, it, it's it's let people know maybe this problem is a little bit of a more of a deeper issue than than just what do we do, like as in terms of what techniques or tools do we use. It's not a. It's not about techniques. Uh, you know, having more air tankers or engines or whatever. It's about how do you live on the land? How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself w- interacting with fire to live on that landscape? And these are very deep questions. They're they're species questions. They're they're the fundamental questions our species has always had to address. And we really changed things when we started burning fossil fuels and the rest. And we've got to work our way through that. But those are those are deeply cultural issues, and you're right; it is a relationship issue. Finally, and so we'd like a technical fix. Just put some more money, a little more science, some whiz bang tools, some new software app, and we fix this. And that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I, I I really appreciate the message you're putting out there, Stefan, because uh, that's a. Uh, it's uh, it's right. I think it's right on point, and it's uncomfortable. And I think uncomfortability is usually a sign that that's probably the direction you want to go in, and it's not so perfectly how you want it. So, okay. Well, listen. Thanks for the opportunity yeah. to chat, and good luck really to you. Applaud your efforts. Good luck to you. Thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate. Um, like we said on EQIQ, it's all about connection, and I really wish you well in all your connections. You know, on your familiar connections, and also with your work. If anyone wants to check out um, Stefan Pine's work, he's got a lot of um, publications. You can check it out on and, and informations and bio. A lot of it's a really fantastic website actually. It's stephanpine.com. and uh, if you want to check it out, you can go check it out. His work out over there. And is there any other? You've, you've got like a lecture series. You're doing quite a lot of interviews and stuff. <laughs> have you got a? You don't have a schedule for that or anything like that. No, no. I just it's sort of hot spotting when the fires come up. Otherwise. Right? I understand. I try so, to write. <laughs> what's that? Sorry? Okay, well, have a good day. Thank All you. Best. All the best, Stefan. Thanks right. a lot. Bye bye. So, if anyone else wants to, um, uh, if you want to catch EQIQ, so you can catch us on all the regular channels and um, Spotify, Anchor, and iTunes. And uh, make sure you join up with our community and keep in touch with uh, all that we're doing. And uh, we'll catch you up next time. <laughs>